In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful Northeast Minneapolis. It's been quite a while since my last cast. I apologize. Been in a bit of a funk lately where it seems like I don't really want to do anything or I don't know. I just have a hard time motivating myself lately. Uh, I've been fighting insomnia. I had a little bit of an issue with my dad being in the hospital. And I think more than anything, this uh, new job, the schedule is so roundabout. I never really know from week to week which day I'm days I'm going to have off, um, and I don't really find out until Friday what my schedule is going to be for the following week, so it's kind of thrown me for a loop a bit, so, but enough the pity party. Hey, uh, one thing I want to bring up, or a few things. First, my pal, uh, Jeremy, over at, uh, better known as Froth, over at the Thought Eater podcast, has started up a cool new show that he's doing on Sundays, the zine club sunday night zine club i think he's calling it so head out to the honeycomb hideout and uh, join froth there to check out the latest in the zine scene he's had some great guests so far uh tim shorts from gothridge manor uh, ray otis from plundergrounds and on the latest one nate treme from Highland Paranormal Society. <laughs> I can't remember the name of what he publishes under, but he did the In the Light of a Ghost Star and Tunnel Goons games. So, or in kind of in a zine format. So, check that out. And speaking of zines, Zine Quest 2 is on uh, for Kickstarter. And I kind of promised myself I'd back. A maximum of three of these things. And so far, the no-brainer was Tim Shorts doing Hunters and Death. And he had a really modest goal of getting 100 uh, subscribers to that. And as of today, he's blown that out of the water up to 403 as of this recording. So congratulations to Tim. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. It's an old-school um, hex crawl in a, a little zine format, so I'm sure that's going to be great. I also backed uh, Steve C. from the Dice Roll Zine Ramblecast. He's doing Dice Roll Zine number three, so I backed that. And in addition, he's offering one tier where you can get a physical copy of Dice Roll Zine number two in addition, so I went for that option because I have it in PDF, but I've only got the physical form of Dice Roll Z number one, and I'm all about the physical stuff. I, I'm not a huge fan of PDFs. So that leaves one more, and I'm debating between Willow, a grim micro-setting by Shane Walsh, and the work of another anchorite, Rudy from RPG Retrofit, with his Sinister Red, an adventure on a vampire planet. So... Those both look really cool. Who knows, I'll maybe end up backing both, but I kind of promised myself I'd only do three. And speaking of Kickstarter, the last thing, 
Uh, Swords and Wizardry is releasing a new version in a box set format in digest size. And that is very tempting to me. I kind of kick myself for not doing the Kickstarter for Old School Essentials. I've really grown to love the digest format, and I really like the idea of breaking up rule sets into uh, smaller pamphlets. It does seem like it would be a little bit easier to use at the table. I love my old BX with the great art and stuff and has lots of nostalgia for me. Um, I'm also, I like Swords and Wizardry too. I, I need to read that again and that will probably be the final decision on whether or not I back this format um, or just stick with what I've got. But I like Swords and Wizardry. Um, I'm a fan of Mike, of Mike, of Matt Finch. I'd much rather give my money to someone like him than to Hasbro. But moving along here, we're going back into the deep dive on BX. And this time, it's the adventure. The next two parts in BX, part four, the adventure, which I'm going to cover today, and part five, the encounter. That's where the meat and potatoes of the game system come into play. And the adventure kind of has, you could think of it, I guess, as the macro rules and the encounter as the micro rules. So the, uh, the adventure is dealing with the procedures of exploration, more or less. And in the basic game, it's all about dungeon exploration. And in the expert set, they cover more of the wilderness and higher-level play um, during adventures. So they break it down into like a procedural kind of thing where a, it starts out with beginning the adventure, where the DM describes... The background of the adventure, a few words about the general area, so a brief description of the base town, names of NPC com uh, companions or retainers, and notable NPCs, NPCs of the area. Rumors, yes. Rumor tables and such are meat and drink of old school modules. But rumors about the dungeon, uh, the area the party is going to explore, maybe a description of local churches for the clerics, and rumors about local points of interest. Um, and it goes into party size and comp uh, composition. And it's interesting here to note, as I alluded to in past episode, that the size of the party, the expectation was that a larger group of player characters would be involved than what you have in later editions of D&D. So here... They're saying the best size for an adventure party is six to eight characters and that it's smart to have a variety of classes. Um, 
And they also talk about an option to play more than one PC when only a few persons are playing. And then, of course, you often would supplement those player characters with hired retainers. And that's where charisma comes into play, and uh, we'll go into that a little bit later in this episode. Um, A base town is a starting point that provides a place where the party can buy equipment, hire retainers, sell treasure, have magic items identified, which is kind of curious because there, as uh, (laughs) I kind of talked about in the spells, there's no real identify spell. Um, The presumption is that you just find some kind of sage or something, or by experimentation maybe come up with... uh, what uh, an obscure magic item does if you couldn't figure it out just by using it, say, like a sword or wearing armor in combat or something. Um, And the base town is also where clerical healing is available for a suitable contribution or service uh, rendered. Organizing the party... um, This is determining things like the marching order... Specifying a caller where they usually, a PC with a high charisma and should be near the front of the party is noted. And a mapper. And we've talked about those roles in uh, past issues. In the expert set, it's fun to look at the organizing a party because they talk about outfitting the party too. And uh, they give an example and <laughs> these these names they give are hilarious. The example is Ulo Ironbeard, a dwarf. Crass tree troll, tree troll, tree tall, a fighter. Theodorus the Wise, a magic user. Nimble Diantha, a thief, and Rothgar the Mighty, a fighter, decide to go on a journey to the city of Specularum. They meet at a tavern to prepare. There is no road that goes directly to Specularum, and none of the party has been there before. Theodorus tries to question some merchants, but finds their directions vague. Rothgar looks for a map showing the route, but without success. In the end, the party decides to hire a guide and two retainer. Uh, as it turns out, the DM will only allow one retainer and the guide to be hired. So then they outfit the party by coming up with the amount of horses, mules, saddles and bridles, a couple lances for the fighters, pack saddle for the mule, flasks of oil, rope, spell books, blankets, 21 weeks of rations, and 21 water skins. Um, you don't really... I don't know. It's... I think it's really fun to to think about outfitting an expedition and what you'd need. And I know I know some players really kind of get bored with this kind of thing and see it as tedious bookwork and accounting, papers and paychecks, etc. But I kind of like getting into the nitty-gritty of those things. Now, uh with time, scale and movement here, the next few topics This is where you really kind of get a feel for the game being more like a board game until you get into like a combat or an encounter situation. And the base uh, measure of time in a dungeon exploration is the turn. So you're taking a turn to do something. And while a turn is described as being 10 minutes, it is further elaborated on as a measure of how much a PC can do in a given amount of time, so how much they can do in their turn. Now, they can explore and map an area equal to their movement rate, or 
search a 10 by 10 foot area, or check for traps, or rest, or load a bag with treasure. And really the, uh, the cost for using this kind of time uh, to do these various activities is expending consumable torches, oil rations, water, wandering monster checks, that's probably the biggest potential cost in a dungeon exploration game, and then, of course, things like spell durations and magic item durations wearing off if, if something has been cast. Uh, spend a lot of time searching around for things, and maybe those spells will have ended by the time you're done searching. For movement, they uh, it's listed as feet in basic, and then yards in expert if you're outdoors in the wilderness. There's no dexterity adjustment to movement rate. All the PC's base movement is 120 feet, and as I elaborated on uh, in an earlier episode, there's no difference for different species of characters, so there's no reduction in movement for halflings or dwarves. Uh, the encounter movement is your base movement divided by three per round. So when you, if you move from the exploration phase of turns to the encounter phase where you shift into rounds, then your movement is divided by three. So if you have a 120-foot move, which is the base, uh, your encounter movement would be 40 feet per round. Uh, if you're using minis, they talk about scale movement uh, equal to your base movement divided by 10 in inches. So that's a common thing in advanced D&D too, where it's, uh, your movement and a lot of ranges and things like that are given in inches rather than you know noted as feet. And one important thing, oh well, uh, wilderness movement is your base movement divided by 5 in miles. So... If you have a base move 120 feet, um, you divide that by 5 to get 24. So you could move 24 miles in one day. And the unit of measure for time kind of shifts more to the day in wilderness exploration. You could probably break it down by hour and stuff too. That's what I do for... If you're rolling for random encounters, I'll typically roll a 12-sider and a 6-sider to determine, like, an a.m. or p.m. time where that happens. Um, but the uh, wilderness area of effect for spells is still in feet, not yards. That's the one thing that does not change in the scale for shifting from the dungeon to outdoors. Something that gets kind of glassed over a lot, I think, is resting in general. People use the mechanic, of course, for recovering spells or for natural healing rates. But in uh, BX, they also make a point of saying that after moving for five turns, the party must rest for one turn. Um, so one turn in six must be spent resting or... Everyone that hasn't rested suffers a minus one to hit and damage until they do rest. And in Expert, they talk about the same thing happening for every day or every five days of movement. You need to spend a, a day resting or you suffer that same kind of penalty. It's um, 
It's something I'd like to see employed more in the games I play, but honestly, it doesn't seem like any of us really keep track of time so closely or procedurally, and... Yeah, as I've mentioned before, I think the game maybe loses something for lacking to do that. I, I'd i like to give it a try, at least, just to see if the game experience changes or improves um, by following all these procedures uh, as given. All right, then we move into encumbrance which is listed as an optional rule, uh, something that's disregarded by many gamers. Um, it's described as encumbrance as a combination of weight and bulk. It's notoriously measured in coins, which is kind of a, I don't know, odd choice. Maybe not as, as coins gold becomes kind of the standard for acquiring experience points. So it's um, maybe makes sense to measure things in coins, but in this, 10 coins equals one pound. So these are these are some monster coins. As I looked it up, and for a pound of U.S. quarters, that's 79 to 80 quarters to equal a pound. So the, <laughs> the coins listed in D&D are presumably... Um, eight times heavier, at least, maybe not in circumference. And, of course, you know, some uh, metals like gold are heavier than the metals used to, to mint a quarter. But still, uh, th these are really large coins. And uh, I don't know. I think it would be better to just measure things in pounds, but whatever. It's uh, encumbrance is broken down into five categories based on movement rate. Uh, and the amount of uh, coins you carry. So for 400 coins or less, or unarmored, your movement rate is 120 feet. You get to 401 to 600 coins or leather armor, and your movement drops to 90 feet. 601 to 800 coins or metal armored, your movement drops to 60. And 801 to 1600 coins or metal armored and carrying treasure, you drop to 30 feet per round, or per turn for uh, for the uh, adventure mode here that we're in. Again, as I've alluded to before, it's kind of crazy, but strength has no bearing on encumbrance, nor does species. So you could be a 60-pound halfling with a three strength and carry just as much weight as some you know, Herculean human with an 18 strength. It's pretty weird and honestly rather dumb, but I'm sure it was done just for simplicity's sake. Um, encumbrance is rare enough <laughs> as far as its use among game tables, so uh, the more simple that you can make it, I suppose, the more likely that the players can be dragged kicking and screaming into using it. Mules in basic are listed as being able to carry two, up to 200 pounds uh, for maximum speed and a maximum load of 400 pounds. And then it lists the capacity for various sacks and backpacks, how, much, how many coins they can, they can hold. 
uh, light. Uh, in here, we discover that a uh, torch burns for six turns, a lantern for a full 24 turns. Um, <laughs> it also makes a point of saying that a PC cannot carry sword, shield, and lit torch at the same time. And then we talk about, they talk about infravision, being able to see heat patterns. It's useless in normal or magical light and cannot be used to read. Um, you know, in later editions of the game, they, they've switched more to the dark vision kind of concept versus infravision. Um, I think it's a little bit easier to adjudicate with a, a dark vision concept. With infravision, you always get into the question of like, well, okay, so undead apparently wouldn't register in the inf in the heat pattern. They don't give off any heat, right? And could you track someone using infravision by the the warmth they left from their footprints? Um, but what this all really uh, comes down to makes me ponder is it says that all non-human monsters have infravision. So <laughs> my question is. Uh, wouldn't humans have been kind of wiped out by now if everything else has infravision? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's a little peculiar. Um, then we go into doors. They're usually closed and often stuck or locked. You can open a door on a rolling a 1 through 2 on a d6, and it is modified by strength, unlike encumbrance. Uh, once opened... Usually, the doors usually swing shut unless spiked or wedged open. And they are listed as usually opening automatically for monsters. Now, if you're a uh, sharp rules lawyer, you've noted that previously monsters are defined as any non-player character, basically. So, if a henchman is technically a monster, does that mean they can automatically open doors? <laughs> It also doesn't really go into detail on like how multiple characters opening a door, how that would work. I'd personally just maybe total their chances together. Um, and then if you, obviously, if you don't open the door on the first try, you lose any chance of surprising whatever's on the other side of the door. Secret doors are noting as, that it takes a turn to search for one. Each PC only gets one chance, and you have to be specifying that you're searching for a secret door and searching in the right area. Uh, elves, of course, have a slightly better chance than other player characters. Listening, again, you only get one chance uh, to listen like at a door or something for something that's behind it. Demi-humans are... Uh, a one to two on a six-sided die. Humans, uh, just a one in six chance. And then thieves, of course, have a slightly better chance. Um, it notes that undead do not make any noise. Makes sense. Then we go into retainers, one of the hallmarks of old-school play. And they're described as being more than simple men-at-arms. They are lieutenants or assistants to a P assistants to a PC and that if they're not well-treated, they will stop working for the PC and will tell others of the mistreatment. <laughs> How often do henchmen just get treated as kind of cannon fodder and stuff? It's, I think it's important to 
if you're using retainers in your game to to really keep track of how the the player characters their their bosses are are treating them uh, it describes the hiring process that you must first find in interview prospective retainers the dm creates the personalities of the npcs that who show up and then there's a kind of a role-playing interchange to just you know decide on a fee there's usually a share of treasure involved if there's equipment and room and board involved and then you roll a 2d6 on the retainer reaction roll and you can add bonuses if uh, they're offered exceptionally high pay or other you know perks or penalties on the roll if they're if the offer is truly a poor one if miserly pcs are just offering a pittance it's un- more unlikely that uh, the retainer will agree to it and on the retainer reaction roll um, there's an offer refused with a minus one r where <laughs> the retainer has such a bad reaction that he tells everyone else in the the town and the party's future retainer reaction rolls are all at minus one. Um, (laughs) And then it can go all the way up to, if you roll a 12 or higher, the retainer accepts the offer and the morale is at plus one. It talks about retainers um, may never be higher level than the PC that's hired them. And then there's some buried flavor in here. In the actual descriptions for the classes of Elf and Dwarf, there was scant mention of what, um, you know, how long these creatures live. It's pretty common fantasy staple that they're long live, but uh, there was no mention of it there. But here it says, Elvish and Dwarvish retainers shall be, should be very rare. Elves have very long lives, but their numbers are not good. Dwarves also have long lifespans, though not nearly so long as elves, but their numbers are greater, though not as great as humans. So, there you go. Uh, retainers gain experience points at half the rate of PCs because they're being directed, they're following orders, but they do gain a full share. Now, again, note these are not just simple men-at-arms. These are... Um, classed retainers that are agreed to go on the adventures with uh, with the PCs. Next we get into traps and as I talked about before every um, player character has a chance to to find a trap. Uh, they have a one in six chance, two in six are dwarves, of finding a trap when searching for one in the correct area. It takes one turn, they get one chance per character, and it does not apply for magical traps. Again, I think a thief, even though they, at low levels, have a, a lower chance than this, should probably get this base chance and their uh, thief percentage chance to find traps. I think that's only fair to make them better than the you know, just any old PC, non-thief PC. Uh, one other aspect is it talks about actually springing the trap, and it's not listed as an automatic, really. 
It says, if any character does something which could tr trigger a trap, such as walking over a certain point, the trap will be sprung on a 1 through 2 on a d6. The DM checks for each character passing the spot until the trap is sprung, or have all safely have passed. Uh, a trap damage is usually automatic once sprung. Um, and again, it talks about monsters can either have the same chance to spring the trap or may never spring trap. Uh, it's the DM's choice, and maybe it depends on if the monsters know that the trap is there or have set it themselves. Um. One thing that's curious about BX is the player characters don't really have the opportunity to improve any of these uh, adventuring activity chances, these exploration kind of D6 die rolls that are made for opening doors, finding secret doors, uh, finding traps, hearing noises, uh, their chances become becoming lost, things like that. So, I mean, you can have a, a veteran 7th level dwarf, and he's no better at any of these things than a 1st level dwarf. So I think it might be, I don't know, a cool house rule, or as part of an, a reimagining of BX, to give player characters the opportunity to improve these various things as they advance in level. Moving along the uh, expert set details the various specialists and mercenaries that you can hire. These are separate from retainers or henchmen, if you will. These are more like just professionals that generally will not be going on adventures with you. And they can be things like an alchemist, armorer, animal trainer, engineer, sage, seaman, spies, and mercenaries. And their rate of pay is based on months of service. The alchemist, for instance, is a thousand gold pieces per month. A sage is two thousand gold pieces per month. An armor, one hundred gold pieces per month. And it's curious with the armor, they talk about how if they're not used to just maintain the equipment of, of mercenaries and such, they can produce in a month uh, one suit of armor, three shields, or five weapons per smith, or per month. And for every three assistants, uh, the output may be doubled, and an armor may manage six assistants. So, again, it's the economics don't really make sense at all because... I mean, you could have an armor and six assistants, and they could crank out, what, four suits of armor? And plate mail costs 60 gold pieces, so the output of seven men would retail them 240 gold pieces, minus the cost of the material and stuff, and <laughs> split up. I, it just doesn't really make sense how they'd, uh, for producing... The apex of weapons and armor, they are kind of living hand-to-mouth. Uh, mercenaries, the pay is divided up based on the troop type, and they list it in costs in gold piece per month. It's assumed that they are maintained with uh, equipment and room and board, but still the cost is a pittance. Uh, it's listed for the various troop types by uh, species. So whether they're human, dwarves, elves, 
and then they list orcs and goblins as well. Um, they do say that for hazardous duty, the cost is double, and the cost should be much higher if the DM permits mercenaries to go on an adventure with a player character. How much is left to the DM? As an example, a heavy footman uh, for a human only requires three gold pieces per month. If that heavy footman is a dwarf, it is raised to five. If it's an orc, it's only one and a half. And the highest rate of pay would be a mounted elf bowman who would demand 30 gold pieces per month. Um, it also lists the morale of various troops, and which is modified by whether they're elite, fanatics, berserkers, or mounted. Typically all add... Um, a bonus to the morale type. That brings us to the last thing, experience points. And as I detailed in a previous episode, the experience points in BX is, uh, really boils down to just recovering non-magical treasures and uh, overcoming monsters, whether that's by feat of arms, magic, or by wits. And the lion's share is going to come from recovering treasure. And as an example, it lists it has a table. Uh, the experience points that you earn per monster is based on their hit dice and whether or not they have special abilities, which is designated by asterisks in the monster descriptions. Uh, as an example, a <clears throat> your typical orc is only worth 10 experience points. Um, a... Something like a gargoyle would be 125 experience points, and a white dragon would be 725. That sounds like quite a bit, but when you split it six ways, say it's a six-person party that brings down that dragon, that's hardly anything. And cons especially considering that the party probably would have to be at least what, third, fourth level to even make that attempt. Um, it's not even going to scratch the surface of the amount of experience points you need to advance to the next level. It's his horde that's worth all the experience points. And that's why in you know play style like this, it's based more upon trying to recover the treasure through guile or, or at least by not risking your life uh, for nothing. You want to make sure that if you're putting your life on the line, you're going to get some gold out of it because that's what gives you experience points. Now, it does say that spe specify or emphasize that treasure is divided by the party, but the DM handles all experience point rewards. So regardless of how the, the party divvies up the loot, the DM is the one that doles out the experience points. And it's typical that you just kind of um, give everyone the same amount, but it does say that the DM has the leeway to uh, award Bonuses are a higher percentage to PCs that go above and beyond and award less to characters who did less than their fair share, so-called do-nothing characters that they have in parentheses. The main thing that bothers me about using treasure as the primary source of experience points is just the whole concept of what the heck are these monsters doing hoarding all this gold all these treasures, why do they place value on it? Do they use it as a, a means of exchange? Um, do they actually use currency in the dungeon? <laughs> I mean, you can 
I suppose explain away some of the things as a, kind of a magpie thing where some creatures just hoard shiny objects or whatever. Or maybe they're, maybe it's a status symbol for some reason. Well, the humans value it, so it must be worth something. But it is kind of a strange thing when you start thinking about it. But I think bottom line is if you're going to accept it, you just have to kind of divorce yourself from that way of thinking and accept it as just an element of the game. Moving on to art. In the basic set, there are two pictures in the adventure section of the book. One is the aforementioned picture of Morgan Ironwolf by Jeff D., uh, which I described in the first deep dive. And the second is a great picture by Errol Otis of what, to me, epitomizes the henchman. It's a kind of burly, grizzled-looking fighter with a, a horned helmet carrying a poleaxe in his left hand and over his right a big bulging sack that's sprung a leak and is dribbling out coins. He's got a really grim expression on his face. In the expert set, there are a few other gems by Errol Otis. There's one uh, under traveling by air of a sorceress riding a magic carpet, kind of like, almost looks like it's a sleigh <laughs> that she's riding. And next to her is someone mounted on a hippogriff, and it's really hard to tell what this guy's head, it almost looks like a cyclops with his mouth open and his hand up like he's waving to the camera or something. And there's a air lotus piece of a couple of ships, one is a galley, the other looks like a merchant ship of some sort small insert shot and there's a great aerolotus piece of a alchemist mixing something up uh his spindly hands and arms kind of a sinister look on his face andy rooney eyebrows got a big medallion and robe or something a couple bats hanging up in the background and then a shelf full of various alchemical uh, doodads, a skull, some books, one of which says Aerolotus 1981. The others and the, some of the bottles are labeled. I need to get a magnifying glass and see if I can actually read them. Um, and then last, there's a, yeah, a so-so picture, a little picture of a mermaid. And then a cool Jeff D. picture of a motley assortment of mercenaries, one kind of like a Viking, a guy with a Norman helmet and shield, Another that looks a little bit like a Mongol, and then a smart-assy-looking archer. They all look rough and ready, look like mercenaries. Good job. So that's uh, my long-winded delve into the adventure portion of uh, the game. Oh, two other things. They uh, There is uh, rules for how terrain affects overland movement. Forced marches, traveling by air. Nothing really all that, I don't know, groundbreaking or worth really going into. So, I'll bid you farewell. Thanks for listening. If you are planning on doing, uh, taking part in any of the Kickstarters for Zine Quest, know that many of them will be uh, elapsing this weekend, like 
I don't know, the 14th, 15th, 16th of February, a lot of them are going to start uh, running out. Most of them, uh, I think the, the rules had like a two-week limit on the time, so there's new ones that launch and stuff too, but the the ones I mentioned I think are all elapsing this weekend, so act now if you want to take part. Till I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap.